Do you know that you can be a Christian and feel completely overwhelmed by what's happening around you? That's not some mark of being unregenerate. You can feel pressed down, hemmed in, struggling to sleep well, and be a Christian. Occasionally, others might weigh in with their own voices, and they might say, well, I don't see how you're going to make it. Where is your God? I'm not sure God would love you if this is what you're going through. Maybe they even say things like what Job's wife told him. Curse God and die. We need the message of Psalm 3 because while we don't want to be in distress in this life, this is not yet the world made new. Until the new heavens and new earth, we will face realities of life that include the unexpected distresses and the daily need for God's grace to uphold us, to protect us, to strengthen us. When we read Psalm 3, we are seeing circumstances pressing in on none other than the very king of Israel. And then we read what he says and what he does in light of what's going on around him. What we read is hope in God. And reading about psalmists hoping in God can help us hope in God. The power of the lyrics of the Psalms work this way. The lyrics of the Psalms connect to our hearts and we go on a kind of journey with the writer. And we go into, with our imaginations, to those circumstances where he is pressed in all around. And then the prayer of crying out to the Lord. And then the answer of the Lord and the protection of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord and the vanquishing of the enemies of God. Our, our hearts go on the journey that these psalm lyrics connect us to. And then we find that reading about the psalmist hoping in God helps us hope in God. The psalms do this wonderful work in us. The challenging circumstances of Israel's king in Psalm 3 might be surprising when we remember what we last learned of of the king in Psalm 2. Right before this psalm, we looked at a pair of psalms, Psalms 1 and 2 that go together. Psalm 1 was about a man delighting in the law of God. He was like a tree planted by streams of water, flourishing, fruitful in all that he did. Psalm 2, the reign of the promised king, the future son of David, the Messiah, reigning over the nations, enemies overcome, despite all their clever plots. So you might expect that in Psalm 3, when you read about the king of Israel, David, who is surrounded by his enemies, that we're ready for some kind of Psalm 2 action. We're looking for some kind of absolute defeat of his enemies and the king rising with some sort of boldness. And in Psalm 3, we read about a suffering king. And maybe we're not prepared for that because we just learned about a reigning king in Psalm 2. The pairing together of these chapters is actually quite helpful for us to understand the way Psalms advances the hope of the Messiah. We see psalms about a reigning king. But we have to prepare for this, dear readers. We read psalms about a suffering king who will be delivered by the Lord. 
And in the full breadth of God's word, especially with the help of the four gospels, we learn this, that the promised king will be a suffering king and then a reigning king. And it ought not surprise us that in the Psalms, we read about both kinds of rulers. This is in the wisdom and providence of God. That David's life, David's life would form a series of patterns and types that anticipated what the greater son of David would experience. When the Lord Jesus is a suffering king in his earthly ministry, it was foreshadowed a thousand years earlier by a suffering king. We read about the life of David who will, whose, whose uh, pattern and, and uh, existence will be lived out and embodied most truly in the Lord Jesus to come. I want to notice right above verse 1 this superscription. And that this psalm, along with this language, is including a number of firsts for us this morning. Several firsts to keep in mind. First... <laughs> Um, Number one, that sounds better, so I'm not repeating first so much. Number one, this is the, well, first occurrence of a superscription. Psalm 1 didn't have one. Psalm 2 didn't have one. Right above verse 1, we read, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. A number of psalms to come are going to have superscriptions. That's a way of saying some little uh, brief, they're not long, and some of them quite short, Some kind of authorship or circumstantial statement. It's really brief and it's right above the very content of the psalm proper. It's the first occurrence of a superscription in the book. Number two, this is the first occurrence of the word psalm. The word psalm, we're looking at the book of Psalms. Here in chapter 3, the superscription calls this a psalm. We're not imposing that language. The very use of the word in the book helps us see how to understand these songs. Number three, this is the first use of David's name. All of this right above verse one, right? First occurrence of a superscription, first occurrence of the word psalm, first occurrence of David's name. Fourthly, this is the first occurrence of a historical setting. Not every psalm of David is going to have a historical setting. This one does. What historical setting do I mean? These words. When he fled from Absalom his son. That's the historical setting. And then lastly, the first occurrence of the word Selah. Doesn't occur in Psalm 1 or 2, but it does occur for the first time here and in many psalms to come. Now, it's not always clear what certain musical terms in the book of Psalms mean. That's also the case with Selah. It it may be some sort of pause or a cue for a musical instrument, but it doesn't have any interpretive bearing. And so I'm not going to rely on the use of Selah once or multiple times to make any point about the content of the psalm. It is the first time it occurs. But the setting is interesting. The historical setting tells us about David and Absalom when he fled Well, we don't read about any more of that in the psalm itself. It's David's response. We have to go elsewhere. In the book of 2 Samuel, David flees from Absalom. Here's what takes place. Beginning in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom has risen against his father with a conspiracy. Absalom's son, David's son Absalom forms a conspiracy against the Lord's anointed one. And I'm borrowing intentionally... From the language of Psalm 2. 
David is the anointed king. And Solomon is gathering against Solomon. Absalom, different son of David. Not the one I mean though. Absalom is gathering against David, the Lord's anointed. And Absalom, to the shock of the reader, succeeds in wooing the hearts of many Israelites. We're told in 2 Samuel 15 that the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Well, that's terrible news if you're the king in power. And then the people under you are going after your conspiring son. We're told David's response is this. 2 Samuel 15, 14. Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down on us ruin. So David fled Jerusalem. You should think about the importance of that statement. He's king over all the land of Israel, ruling from the city of Jerusalem. He's got a covenant with God. He's got the Ark of the Covenant in the city, and he's running Running not just from anybody, but from his son Absalom, who's risen to oppose him. He crosses the brook Kidron. He goes up to the Mount of Olives in 2 Samuel 15. In the next chapter, there's a man named Shimei who curses David, throws stones at David. This is the king of Israel. David is being opposed in this way. And and here's what the man against David says. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you've reigned. The Lord's given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And see, this evil is on you for you're a man of blood. So David's hearing all of this language. He's not only being opposed by Absalom. Shimei is saying, the Lord is against you, David. The Lord is opposing you. That's why this is happening. And then forces from Absalom pursue David They pursue David searching for him. But the Lord delivers David. In 2 Samuel 18, Absalom is killed. In 2 Samuel 19, David returns to Jerusalem. He is protected. He's been vindicated. And I think this setting will help us read Psalm 3. Because we're told this is a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The presence of the foes of David are mentioned in verses 1 and 2. Look at them with me, these pair, this pair of verses. Oh Lord, so immediately an address to God, this is a prayer. It's an exclamation and a prayer to God that David declare what is true about his circumstances. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. The word many is used three times. We can't miss the point there. Verses 1 and 2, he says, Lord, there are many. Did I say many? I mean many. Many are rising against me. David is surrounded, opposed on every side. The hostility seems overwhelming. This is a king in a desperate situation. What escape is there? He's personally targeted. They are rising Against me. It's not like David is just part of some collateral damage of plots. It's really focused on something else. He is the target of the plot. They're rising against me. And not just this, he's outnumbered. What is David when the hearts of people of Israel have turned to Absalom? What is David compared to all of the many who are now rising in opposition against him? We are seeing Psalm 2 play out in some way. David is not the Messiah, but in his life, he's living out in 2 Samuel, people rising against the Lord's anointed one. That is what's happening. 
This is not small problem. The report of these words is a pronouncement of despair in verses 1 and 2. And he's summarizing the position of the enemies. You know what they think about David? There is no salvation for him and God. He's not getting out of this. We have cornered him. He's against the Red Sea, if you will. There is no deliverance. This is a way of saying David is overwhelmed by the hostility and the enemies are quite confident and sure that the victory is theirs. No salvation coming from God for him. David knows what others say about his circumstances. But David also knows what is true about God. Some helpful example here to follow. Because it is good for us in our times of devotion and prayer to speak to God about what ails us inwardly and around us. But we don't always end, we don't want to end with saying what is true about our circumstances. We want to also focus on what we know is true about God. And here David says, I know what they're saying. I know what they tell me, that there's no deliverance coming. But God hears what I know about you. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. And my glory and the lifter of my head. So David knows what is true. And if these naysayers alongside are saying, you have no hope, David, then David's response inwardly would be, but I know God. I know what is true of God. Now the reason David knows this, the reason he can be like a tree planted by streams of water, whether he's in Jerusalem or whether he is outside of Jerusalem, is because he knows the Word of God. He exhibits in some sort of even partial way the life of the blessed man in Psalm 1. The counsel of the wicked and the onslaught of the conspirers in Psalm 2 will not deter David's heart from God. He knows God. And he says in verse 3, You, O Lord, are a shield about me. This picture is of a shield that is protecting. That's what a shield is for. David doesn't believe he's forsaken. God is the protector, the intervener. Yahweh protects him like a shield. A shield is one of the most common metaphors for God in the Psalms. You can read in not only book one of the Psalms, but even into book five of the Psalms where the metaphor of God's protection like a shield is used. David uses this language, but it appears much earlier in the Old Testament. Think Genesis. Can't get earlier than that. In God's words to Abraham, he says to Abraham in Genesis 15, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. And what God was for Abraham, God is for David. And what God was for Abraham and for David, God is for us. God is our shield. And he says carefully here, you are a shield about me. It's an interesting preposition there. You might have expected him to say, you are a shield in front of me. That's where you would hold a shield. That's where shields would normally go. David conceives of God as a shield surrounding him. Think carefully what the imagery implies. You are a shield about me. 
It is a way of conceiving of God surrounding David as a shield. Yes, David is surrounded by his enemies. But more importantly, David is surrounded by God. By God. You are my shield. You are a shield about me and my glory. This second term, this word glory, means something like boast. Something that would be exalted in. And I think the analogy might be put in several questions. What would David's boast or confidence or his glory be in? Well, in a worldly perspective, somebody might say, well, David's glory would be his mighty military forces. Or his boast would be in his reputation and fame as a king. Or perhaps in the strength of his forces and fortresses and riches Compared to other kings. Maybe his glory is those things. David says none of those things. You, O Lord, are my glory. I think this is the way Jeremiah would later put it in that prophet. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. David's boast, his confidence, his glory, what he's wrapped up in, he is committed to God. You are, in third, thirdly here, the lifter of my head. The lifter of my head is important because it, it's a response to a downcast head. We're told in 2 Samuel 15, when David flees and he goes to the brook Kedron and he's on the way to the Jordan River, he's fleeing and others with him are cast down. They're covered up with their heads. They're not trying to lift their heads in the face of others. Their heads are naturally downcast with, with what's going on. So to lift the head, it's to come alongside someone. Let's imagine someone's chin is on their chest. And you were to take your hand gently. And you were to put it under their chin. And you were to lift their head. It's something done to another with a view of public honor. Public honor, public vindication. Something like that. To bestow dignity and care. To bestow attentiveness. That's what we see this meaning. You, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. Here's what we can grasp with David's words so far. David's problem is big. David's God is bigger. He's worthy of all trust. Altogether faithful. Altogether worthy as an object of hope. David says, I cried aloud in verse 4 to the Lord. And he answered me from his holy hill. This is the language of prayer. In the language of prayer, which is the psalm as a whole, David speaks of praying. I cried aloud to the Lord. David knows to whom he must turn. He turns to the Lord. The holy hill language is language about Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the city on a hill. This was the place where the temple would later be built. Though it's not yet been built in David's day, the Ark of the Covenant is brought there. David is reigning from this holy hill. And it's a way of saying the presence and blessing of God have come to David. And yet these earthly cities and shadows and patterns in David's life and even Jerusalem symbolized heavenly and future realities. We can even say that when we pray, God answers us from the heavenly place. In other words, from his holy hill where Christ Jesus reigns, God answers his people with his sovereign power. David says, I cried to the Lord. He answered me from his holy hill. 
And this is also connected to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 6, as for me, God says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So there's the holy hill language in Psalm 2. David says, it's from there God's blessing and power and preserving, rescuing grace. Come, I've called to God and he answers. David's been quite overwhelmed with all these forces rising against him. So I wonder if verses 5 and 6 surprise us as readers. I laid down and slept. You might imagine that if you are surrounded by all of these forces and opposed on every side, the last thing you're going to be thinking of doing is, well, you know, I would normally be in bed by now. I guess I should get going. You might be thinking, how in the world can I sleep with all that's going on? If all of these stresses and pressures and my very life hanging on the line, listen, of the things that are going to have to go to the wayside by now, sleep's one of them. And David says, I lay down and slept. But we know that given difficult circumstances, sleep can prove difficult as well. Stress and uncertainty can create a bodily situation of restlessness and insomnia. A professor of neurology explains it this way. High levels of stress impair your sleep by prolonging how long it takes to fall asleep and fragmenting sleep. Then sleep loss triggers your body's stress response system, leading to an elevation in stress hormones, namely cortisol, which further disrupts your sleep. It can become a very vicious cycle. And if this has been your experience, as it's been mine from time to time, you can know how frustrated, frustrating restless nights can be. High levels of stress impair your sleep. David knows these things to be true of the Lord, that God is his shield, that God is the lifter of his head. Oh, and even before that, that God is his glory. He cries to the Lord, turns to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord grants him what seems to be maybe a surprising turn of events. David finds some sleep. And the reason that this is explained, how this is explained in verse 5, is he lay down and slept and woke again, for the Lord sustained me. There is a, a trust here in the sovereignty of God and in the providence of God that must undergird David's responses. David must remind himself I cannot control my circumstances. I do not have the resources and the power to stop all of those opposing forces and woo back all of those hearts of the Israelites. But I know God and I know who God is and I know what God can do. So I'm going to lay my head down and get some sleep. Here you have the Lord sustaining David. God is awake when you are not. The God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, the psalmist tells us later in the book. So you know what David can know? What's going to happen if I go to sleep? God will remain awake. That's what will happen. And if God is what David says he is, a shield and glory and a lifter of his head, then if God lifts up David's head, David can lay his head down on a pillow. Or maybe a rock in the case of his flight from Absalom, I don't know. Here you have laying down in sleep. In the Old Testament and in the New, sleep can sometimes be a metaphor for death. 
We know here in 2 Samuel's background, David does not die from Absalom's forces. But if you will, sleep can become a metaphor of the people's hope in God. You and I, we sleep in this earthly life uh, needing rest. But there is also a sleep coming for our bodies. The sleep of death. And just as God sustains David and David rises again from sleep, this very experience that we have day and night, day and night, when our bodies are resting at death, they will rise again by the power of God. The sleep of death in the New Testament and rising from sleep at the coming of Christ has Old Testament background with things like this. I lay down and slept. And I woke again for the Lord sustained me. In verse 6, I will not be afraid. Now that's not to say David wasn't. He's talking to his situation. He's speaking to the Lord. He's recognizing what's around him. This is what he's doing in spite of every earthly reason to fear. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. Even that language of setting themselves against me reminds us of Psalm 2, verse 2. That the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord's anointed. Here's David, the Lord's anointed, the king. And he has those set against him with all their might. And he says, and I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who set themselves against me. Why won't he fear? Is it because the enemies have changed their mind and they're like, well, we get up and go home? No. It's not because the circumstances have changed or the enemies have switched sides. The reason David doesn't fear is because ultimately God. If the enemies have surrounded him, God surrounds him more. If his enemies have plotted against him, God is his shield surrounding him. David believes these things. I'm not saying it's easy for David to believe. He has every earthly reason outwardly and circumstantially to tremble with fear and not sleep until all is resolved. But David knows, I really, I really can trust God. I can really trust Him. And I can close my eyes and sleep. Because God remains awake. In verses 7 to 8, the end of the psalm is David calling to God for deliverance. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Arise, O Lord, save me. This is, this is language from Numbers. In Numbers chapter 10, the Israelites are going to set out from Sinai. They're going to head to the promised land. And you know what they have traveling with them? Are all the artifacts of the temporary tent of meeting or the tabernacle. One of the things that is kept in the tabernacle in the most sacred room is called the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark of the Covenant sets out on the shoulders of those uh, appointed to carry it, it's to go into battle before the Israelites. And here's the language in Numbers 10.35. The Israelites are told, whenever the Ark sets out, Moses says, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And here's David. David in Psalm 3. And what does he say? Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, strike your enemies down. Break the teeth of the wicked. Here is David knowing that the presence of God will vindicate his people and overcome the wicked. David really believes this. 
And he knows that Numbers 10.35 was not just for the days of Moses. Here you have centuries later, David is king. And what does he call for God to do? Vindicate his anointed one and overcome his adversaries. The ark is envisioned here as the resting place of God. That's a way of picturing the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant in the most holy place. And God's presence and glory manifests there. It's, it's to say God arises when the ark is taken out for battle. The ark is that picture here invoked with the language arise, O Lord. The sacred spot of God's presence among the camp of the Israelites. This is another way of David simply saying, Lord, will you break out in your holy judgment on my behalf? Will you manifest your righteous ways against your enemies and on behalf of your king? Oh God, would you do this? And we know he means for God to deliver. Because the next line after arise, O Lord, is save me, O my God. If God is to act on behalf of the king, what specifically does David want? O Lord, deliver me. And deliver me from whom? Well, the enemies are part of lines three and four. For you strike my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. This is a strike on the outer part of the face, on the cheek, that breaks the teeth on the inside of the, of the cheek. In other words, this is quite a blow to the face. Okay? This is the kind of strike on the cheek that causes severe damage inwardly. He says, save me, O oh my God, because you can overcome my enemies. That graphic depiction of the enemy's defeat and the breaking of their teeth is to say, Oh Lord, you can deal my enemies. The kind of uh, response that only you can provide and that would be the only thing to deliver me. The reason we know David would never ascribe deliverance to himself is because of his confidence in God's power and sovereignty and plan. He goes to say in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. When he calls God to rise and deliver and to overcome his enemies, he knows that if deliverance is going to come, it's going to come from heaven. Earth is not the ultimate source of anyone's salvation, but rather God's heavenly mercy and delivering grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And friend, that's not just a message of Psalm 3. That's the message of the Old and New Testaments. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the message of the storyline in the Old Testament before Christ. And with the advent of Christ's coming and all of His earthly ministry and signs and wonders and the proclamation of the apostles, the message of the Bible is that salvation belongs to the Lord. David calls upon the Lord for deliverance. He recognizes its divine origin. This would initially mean working out in David's life, he's preserved from his enemies. But the word salvation is multi-layered in the Old and New Testament. You could speak of someone in the New Testament Gospels delivered from their blindness or delivered from their paralysis. You could speak of someone in the Old Testament delivered from the Philistines or experiencing salvation from the Assyrians. But the multi-layered meaning and significance of salvation takes on a depth that we need the whole Bible to work out. What we ultimately need is not deliverance from Absalom. And that's not David's biggest problem either. David needs deliverance from Absalom, but not ultimately. 
What point is it for anyone to be delivered from Absalom and die in their sins? Absalom may be determined and fierce, but he's not worse than the power of sin, the last enemy which is death, and the raging evil one who seeks our demise. We need the rescuing grace and salvation from God to deliver us from the penalty of sin. We need deliverance from death by his resurrecting power. And friends, salvation belongs to the Lord. He is not unable. Come to God. Flee to Christ. This is the God that David knows. The one who pursues David with a rescuing, redeeming hand. David knows salvation belongs to the Lord. And because salvation belongs to the Lord, all glory and praise belongs to the Lord. Glory is due unto God because salvation is accomplished by God alone. David doesn't say, Lord, Salvation belongs to you. But if we could negotiate, maybe if you did a little bit and I did a little bit and we met each other halfway, I don't want to over ask. I'm telling you in the gospel, friends, you're not bringing any of your effort to try and negotiate with the Lord. We are trying to ask in its totality, Lord, save me body and soul from the penalty of sin and death. We're saying, Lord, this is my problem. It is bigger than me, but it is not bigger than you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This end of the psalm, your blessing be on your people, is a fitting prayer from David to God for others. He's praying that God's blessing would be upon them. We've seen that language in Psalm 1 and 2 already. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. That's the beginning of Psalm 1. The end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son of David. When David prays, Your blessing, God, your blessing be on your people. What does he have in mind? I think David is praying that God would grant to others what he himself has already experienced from God. And that is that they would consider God their shield. That God would be for them their glory. That God would be for them the lifter of their heads. That God would bless his people by sustaining them through distress and even their need for sleep. That God would bless them by rescuing grace which subdues his enemies and vindicates his people. Friend, I want you to know this morning that we are blessed in these ways because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the Son of David. The Lord Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah and the King who reigns. And in him, in Christ, we are kept and sustained and we are blessed and we are renewed. Day by day, moment by moment, we are kept in the love of God through our unbreakable union with Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. I would submit to you this morning, we can pray things like Psalm 3 with confidence and assurance that you, O Lord, are my shield, glory, and lifter of my head. For Jesus Christ is the victorious Davidic King and his name is our refuge. All the suffering and woes of David in First and Second Samuel and that he sings about in this psalm, they anticipate and foreshadow the person and work of Christ. After all, Christ, with a heavy heart, leaves Jerusalem. He goes over the brook Kidron and he ascends to the Mount of Olives 
like David did in 2 Samuel. And Christ was betrayed by one quite close to him. Christ wept. And on the night he was betrayed, went to the Mount of Olives with such a heavy heart. And during the earthly ministry of Jesus, Jesus could truly say, How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. That's the rhythm you get when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That as those Gospels progress, people are rising and conspiring against the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, upon the cross, upon the cross, Jesus would have looked overcome and defeated. The angel had told Mary and Joseph to name him Jesus. And Jesus is a name that means Yahweh is salvation. And now upon the cross, there seems to be no deliverance found. He's been tried. He's been sentenced. He's been crucified. People could have looked on the cross and they might have thought the words of Psalm 3-2. There is no salvation for him in God. But in the mysterious working of God's redemptive plan, Jesus would not be delivered from death But after it, not before it, but through it. Onlookers might have thought there was no salvation for him and God. Jesus could have rightly said, there will be deliverance for me. Salvation from God for me. Salvation is my name. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they laid Jesus' body in the tomb. And Jesus slept the sleep of death. And on the third day, God speaks the words of Psalm 3-7 to the body of the Son. Arise, O Lord. And Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25 I am the resurrection and the life. We can trust the one for whom those words are true. Christ. Christ. And Christ alone is our shield and glory and lifter of our heads. He will save and sustain us. And raise us on that last day. We say as the people of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And in him. Salvation has been given to us. Let's pray together.